Stories Behind the White Coat. This is Grayscale. I'm Ben Davis. Grayscale is back. I know, I've said that many times before, and I'm going to say it again. It's been a while, and I've been bad about putting out episodes, but I'm going to try to be better moving forward. It's been a doozy. It's 2020. You know what 2020 is about. And 2020 has been a year for our program as well. Uh, It's been a year for me as program director, but it's been a year for our faculty, our residents, our staff. There's been COVID. There's been a strike. There's been program changes. And there's been Black Lives Matters. And I'm really, really proud today in multiple levels, but uh, as a program director especially, to present an episode that doesn't include an ounce of my voice. This episode is going to be done by Colin Schenk, Anne-Marie Williams, and Katie Wan, three of our recent graduates at the program. They're going to be talking about racial inequities and obstetrical care. I know, it's a mouthful. It's a daunting topic. They took on the challenge. This is an episode. It's not going to be popcorn. This is one with reading glasses, a cup of tea, and your listening ears. So listen carefully. Learn as I learned listening to this episode. And hopefully I can bring some more content to you in the near future. Here we go. Welcome to a special episode of Grayscale. I'm Colin Shank, and I'm here today with two of my colleagues. I'm Katie Wan. And I'm Anne-Marie Williams. We're all family medicine doctors who recently finished our residency training in Seattle. My main job moving forward will be working with pregnant people with substance use disorders. I'll be splitting my time between Navajo Nation and Liberia. And I'm planning to work at a community health center in Seattle. Normally, this podcast explores the areas of ambiguity in the healing arts. Today, we're going to discuss a subject where there is no ambiguity. Black lives, black pregnancies, and black families matter. We're going to dive deep into the racial inequities in obstetrical care. In 2018, some astounding statistics gained national attention, showing that black people are over three times more likely to die of pregnancy-related causes than white people in the U.S. Black people are also at least twice as likely as white people to experience severe complications related to pregnancy or childbirth. That's a huge disparity, making pregnancy a much more dangerous experience for Black people. Trying to understand the reasons behind those statistics was the basis of our research into this topic, which was originally planned for a presentation within our hospital, but is coming to you as a podcast. Similar disparities exist for other racial groups, but we're focusing on Black maternal health today. We'll explore the history of racism in caring for pregnant people. We'll highlight some of the research that helps us understand the causes of racial disparities. And we'll celebrate the people and programs that are leading the way and showing us all how we can overcome these inequities. We started preparing for this episode before the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many others that have recently caught the nation's attention. Obstetrical racism is as old as America, but current events are helping put it back in the forefront of our minds. We're hopeful that our message will add to the growing chorus of voices demanding equity and care for black pregnant people. And let's be clear, we are three white voices. Black people have produced an extraordinary amount of scholarship on this topic. They have led organizations for decades advocating for change. Today, we hope to honor their leadership and spread their messages. We will also be sharing some reflections on our experiences as white healthcare providers learning to center anti-racism in our practice. That may not be something that some listeners need or want to hear, so we wanted to give you a heads up that that's part of the episode. It's the perspective that we have to offer, and it will hopefully be helpful for other white providers going through a similar process. For podcasts that center the voices and experiences of pregnant people of color, we recommend you check out Natal and Birth Stories in Color. So before we really get started, let's ground ourselves with a poem. During this episode, we're going to share a few poems by Black people that reflect on themes of health and reproductive justice. Our readings won't meet the poem's full potential for sure, but it's an opportunity to highlight creative voices that are essential to this movement for racial justice. This first poem is called Affirmation by Eve Ewing. Speak this to yourself until you know it is true. I believe that I woke up today and my lungs were working, miraculously. 
My voice can sing and murmur and ask miraculously. My hands may shake, but they can hold me or another. My blood still carries the gifts of the air from my heart to my brain miraculously. Put a finger to my wrist or my temple and I feel it. I am magic. Life and all its good and bad and ugly things, scary things which I would like to forget, beautiful things which I would like to remember. The whole messy, lovely, true story of myself pulses within me. I believe that the sun shines. If not here, then somewhere. Somewhere it rains, and things will grow green and wonderful. Somewhere inside me, too, it rains, and things will grow green and wonderful. Sometimes my insides rain from the inside out, and then I know I am alive. I am alive. I am alive. You can support Dr. Ewing's writing by purchasing her book, Electric Arches, wherever you get your art. Dr. Ewing is from Chicago, which is also where Katie and I call home. In Chicago, black pregnant people are six times more likely than white people to die from pregnancy-related complications. Overcoming a disparity of that magnitude has to be grounded in anti-racism. And anti-racist work happens at both the systems and the individual levels. We're going to start with the self-work needed to address interpersonal racism and promote cultural change. That begins with a bit of background on racist bias and the people and organizations who are showing how to address it. After that, we'll touch on the history of racism and obstetrics in the U.S., and now that history contributes to the behaviors and concepts that shape the racial disparities we see today. We'll talk about race-based medicine, provider-patient relationships, and risk-based identities. We'll also explore some academic literature and the holes in that research as we review more about why these inequities exist and what we need to do to overcome them. We'll end with a review of major pieces of policy in the pipeline. We'll start our conversation with self-work, and for me, the entire residency experience was full of self-work and checking my biases. An important step being, of course, to acknowledge that bias exists. According to a survey, of maternal fetal medicine providers, they tend to underestimate the impact of their biases. Among more than 450 responders, only 29% strongly or somewhat agreed that their biases affect how they care for patients. That survey, though, was done in 2015. Over the past five years, there's been so much attention given to implicit bias, I'd hope that self-awareness among providers has grown. I'd hope so, too. But implicit bias research is pretty clear that these interventions need to be longitudinal to have an effect Yet the trend is for brief one-off trainings. I agree. And for me personally, overcoming biases requires constant practice and humility, not a feel-good company retreat. And don't get me wrong, I love anti-racism retreats, but my humility in anti-racism means learning from people who do this work a lot better than me. Midwifery and doula groups, often led by people of color, are doing excellent work pushing providers to be aware of how their biases harm patients. Our residency has been fortunate to receive trainings from local doula organizations, and this has created important avenues for dialogue. I felt really inspired by reading about a group called Emerald Doulas that sets up feedback meetings with providers who exhibit problematic behaviors. I'm particularly grateful for the work of black midwives like Rebecca Paulston in Minnesota and Demetra Sarecki in Colorado, and works that have centered black moms like the documentary Naked Truth, Death by Delivery, for providing stories that highlight the way moms are experiencing their care. A doula in Naked Truth describes watching a provider repair a perineal laceration where the patient was expressing pain and the provider was not stopping the repair. Now, while we all immediately want to say to ourselves that we would never be that provider, for me, the important way to hear these stories is that I could easily be that provider and I need to listen deeply to these stories and commit to ways I'm going to avoid being that provider. Not simply to look at this patient and think, how can I make sure they are comfortable during this procedure, but know the history and present of undertreatment of pain of black people, know that the patient probably knows that information too, and is probably worried about not having their pain addressed. How can I make sure this patient feels confident that I am going to keep them comfortable during this procedure? Naked Truth also highlights that talking to patients during contractions was experienced as discrimination or a lack of care for the patient. You might say, that's obvious, and it is. But as a learner, where the experience in the labor room can be very chaotic, I know I have done that at some point. 
And I'm sure I've done it to women of color and I'm sure I've done it to white women. But it's important for me to hear that and realize that as a white provider in a room with a black patient, talking during contractions perpetuates racism. Clearly, a huge benefit of having a doula is having someone to bear witness to the care you are receiving and acting as an advocate to amplify your voice. There's data from New York City that doula services were associated with reduced rates of preterm birth and low birth weight for black pregnant people. And in Chicago, postpartum doula services have been shown to increase rates of breast or chest feeding for black parents. Everyone should have access to a doula if they want one. Unfortunately, many insurance plans don't cover doula services, and black and low-income pregnant people are less likely to access doulas. There are a lot of sliding scale groups, but the doulas doing this work, who are oftentimes people of color themselves, should be compensated for their valuable services without sacrifice. As physicians, this is a resource we should advocate for. We should also commit to speaking up in the workplace when we see racism taking place. We need to work to take the burden off of doulas, midwives, and providers of color. The Institute for Perinatal Quality Improvement has a campaign called Speak Up that I've appreciated. It highlights simple communication strategies to help hold each other accountable. While we're on the topic of speaking up, we've noticed a pattern in the anti-racism M&M conferences that we've organized in our residency, which is that rarely was the observed racism addressed in the moment. It can be incredibly challenging to navigate these conversations as they're happening, especially in high-stress environments like labor and delivery, and in a way that keeps us working well together as colleagues. I think that's why the Speak Up campaign is so powerful. It helps simplify and set goals for the intervention. Speak Up is an acronym, and it starts with setting limits for what is acceptable behavior in your organization. The P stands for practicing and preparing for the moment when you witness something inappropriate. E is for expressing your concerns without taking a blame approach. A is for apologize if you do something hurtful. K is for keep improving. U is for uncover and learn. And P is for persuading others to speak up. And in addition to speaking up in the moment, or when an incident happens that we don't process quickly enough to respond in the best way, or when we realize we made a mistake ourselves, each health system needs a way to report instances of racist behaviors to facilitate recognition of patterns and guide systems-level responses. The Council on Patient Safety in Women's Healthcare developed a QI bundle that emphasizes developing that kind of reporting system to respond to these things. That's getting to the system stuff, but I think we have more self-work to do first. I think learning about the history of racism in American obstetrics is a good place to start. Before we get further into this discussion, though, I think this is a good time to pause and acknowledge how distressing this conversation can be, particularly for folks of color. Listeners, whenever you need to, just press pause and take a moment to ground yourself. Thank you for that reminder. I also think it's important to explain why we're sharing this traumatic history so that we don't fall into a trap of racist historical voyeurism. We're sharing this narrative because so much of what we see today in health disparities and racist medical practices can be traced back directly to medical theories and behaviors during slavery. The medical community has to confront the roots of these intergenerational traumas so we can put a stop to their perpetuation. With that in mind, let's get more into the history. The historical narrative typically begins with J. Marion Sims, who is often referred to as the father of modern gynecology because of his research on enslaved people. Yeah, father of modern gynecology is about as patriarchal as it sounds. He still has techniques and tools named after him, but it seems he is increasingly remembered for his atrocities against enslaved people. His practices were such failures, so atrocious, that even white people refused to work with him. So instead, he forced enslaved women into medical roles. These women are the true mothers of American obstetrics and gynecology. Deirdre Owens' book, Medical Bondage, is super instructive on this, and her writing informs a lot of what I'm sharing. This is such an ugly but important truth to acknowledge. We need to do a better job, including it in medical education. Colin, tell us what Sims was after with his awful experiment. Sims was part of a larger move to shift control of birth doctors, all white males, from community practitioners, usually enslaved women, for two reasons. First, there was a clear economic incentive for experimentation to extract maximum labor benefit from women while forcing them to produce more slaves. Slavers had already developed practices to maintain control while protecting pregnancies. For example, they would whip pregnant people's backs with their abdomens protected in a hole in the ground. But Sims and these other doctors didn't experiment just to improve the fertility of enslaved people. Once the experiment seemed effective on enslaved people, white pregnant people would reap the benefits of better techniques. 
This furthered a larger push for the medical profession to gain more and more control and profit from medicalization of aspects of life that used to be considered a household affair. So they were using enslaved black people as involuntary experimental subjects in work that became the foundation of modern Western medicine. Right. The sudden growth of obstetrics and gynecology in the U.S. was critical to American medicine gaining respect from more advanced European counterparts. But there's also a contradiction here because American providers failed massively and frequently. Despite honing techniques to later be used on white patients, repeated failures were blamed on differences that slaveholders argued were inherent to blackness. This was early racecraft, an attempt to establish biological differences in race. They reported much of this in their journals about slavery practices. So they were ascribing some features as universal and some as race-based, fairly arbitrarily to suit their needs. This sort of random, murky, race-based medicine will be a familiar topic to most recent medical trainees. It's a history we're still trying to untangle as a profession. Definitely. And I found Dr. Owen's concept of the enslaved medical superbody helpful in understanding that better. The medical superbody as a concept still shapes racist stereotypes of black people today, which is why I'm sharing it with you. It can be distressing to hear these stereotypes spoken out loud, but many white providers need to hear it so they can confront it. So according to Dr. Owens, the black female medical superbody is defined as hypersexual, extremely fertile, and much stronger than white women. This concept was invented to, quote, justify continued hard physical labor during pregnancy and surgery without anesthesia. At the same time, according to Dr. Owens, the idea was invented that black women lacked the patience, humility, meekness, and beauty of white women, thereby justifying their social inferiority. So a, quote, physically stronger but socially inferior person could, by these doctors' logic, be experimented upon while justifying their enslavement. This idea helps show how racecraft is a circular and self-reinforcing phenomenon. Existing prejudices are used to create, quote, knowledge. That knowledge claims differences as biological and obscures the real cause of difference, oppression. This biological explanation then, quote, justifies ongoing prejudices and oppression. This continues into the present day, although it can be harder to identify it in a society where explicitly stated prejudices are less tolerated. John Hoberman's concept of obstetrical hardiness shows similar racecraft work to the medical superbody, and I think it conveys how insidious this can be. Racial hardiness theories posit that some races are biologically more robust and capable of withstanding various insults. Doctors like Sims talked about obstetrical hardiness of black people to justify their medical practices. For example, they assessed pelvis shape on physical exams, which is what we call pelvimetry, and made generalizations about pelvis differences between races. They then argued that the shape of black people's pelvises meant they didn't need pain medication during labor, among other racist generalizations. And race-based pelvimetry isn't just a thing of the past. As recently as 2008, the journal Obstetrics and Gynecology published an article that used pelvic MRIs to show differences in pelvis shape by race. The authors concluded that pelvis shape may explain differences in obstetric outcomes. So historically, weak evidence about pelvis shape patterns were used to restrict access to pain medications. And we know that racist ideas about pain tolerance still cause undertreatment of black people's pain. And now more recently, researchers are trying to use pelvis shape again, but this time to find a genetic explanation for racial disparities in maternal fetal outcomes. The same racist science can be used in very different ways in different eras, but always contribute to treatment disparities. And pelvimetry is still used in some places to predict whether a C-section will be needed. The documentation template where we train actually includes a section we are supposed to state whether a pelvis is adequate based on our exam. And we still do that, despite the World Health Organization recommending against it. This is an imprecise skill, and it has weak evidence on predicting C-sections. But if a doctor thinks a pelvis is too narrow, they may be more likely to recommend a C-section. According to that article on pelvis MRIs, black people are said to have narrower pelvises on average. Reading that kind of article can bias doctors toward recommending C-sections, even if it isn't at all correlated with outcomes. These are the kinds of racist biases that can contribute to black people having a higher rate of C-sections. Research is clearly one of the racecraft structures we have to take on. It seems like other healthcare structures today are just as potent in racecraft, though. 
Dr. Chiara Bridges is a professor of anthropology at Berkeley who did incredible work showing this. She wrote an ethnography showing how race was socially constructed through the care being provided in a large public hospital, including an OBGYN residency clinic. What's it like reading an ethnography of a residency clinic while still in residency? It cut deep in a much needed way, and I think we could all benefit from an ethnographic lens in our training environments. Her book is called Reproducing Race, an Ethnography of Pregnancy as a Site of Racialization, and I highly recommend you check it out. So what structures did Dr. Bridges focus on? Medicaid and medical technology. She shows how New York City's Medicaid program at the time trapped pregnant people in a disciplinary surveillance program that pathologized them from the outset of their prenatal care. Patients with Medicaid were required to go through hours of meetings with social workers, WIC, HIV counselors, and others before they would even be offered a chance to meet with a healthcare provider. Trying to get pregnant people connected with resources early in pregnancy may seem like a well-intentioned plan, but those services also create hoops to jump through and can problematize pregnant people's lives. It can force identities of vulnerability or risk on them. These services can highlight risks like housing insecurity, mental illness, or substance use that eventually lead to decreased patient autonomy, typically by bringing child protective services into patients' lives. Dr. Bridges shows how medical technologies accomplish the same thing. In her study, pregnant people felt obligated to accept technologies like lab tests and ultrasounds. This pressure can be compounded in pregnancy when providers might emphasize the health of a fetus over the autonomy of the pregnant person. When these tests revealed abnormalities, Dr. Bridges argued they created what she called unruly bodies in need of taming by the medical establishment. Put in terms that may be more familiar to medical providers, if we do testing that highlights risk factors, we then diagnose a high-risk pregnancy, which signs the patient up for more monitoring during pregnancy. Testing begets more testing, and in the process, a pregnant person's body is viewed as not following the rules of a, quote, normal pregnancy. Many providers may not see lab tests or ultrasounds as controlling, and in fact probably think of them as a way to overcome disparities. But healthcare providers have to remember that reproduction for black people has historically been a space for control and denigration. When testing is happening to vulnerable populations who feel obligated to accept it, this labeling and surveillance can remind people of their powerlessness and posit them as beholden to medical care. We have to remember that the context that surrounds a given test or exam has an impact on how that test result will impact a patient's care. Yeah, social control of black reproductive lives has been a constant in American history. It's important to remember that racial disparities in maternal outcomes are just one part of the struggle for black reproductive justice. Dorothy Roberts shares a history of black reproductive justice in her book, Killing the Black Body. And that historical context is really informative for making sense of what we see today. Dr. Roberts is essential reading for anyone looking to dive into this further. I'll do my best to summarize her work here. So as we discussed earlier, fertility was forced on enslaved people for economic purposes during slavery. After slavery, the goal of white power was to reduce black fertility, and that took the form of eugenics in the 20th century. It's important we acknowledge that area because it has a clear legacy in how we talk about black pregnancy today. Sterilization campaigns for black people and others in the early 20th century gave way to other forms of contraception by the mid-20th century. Margaret Sanger was the leading public advocate for contraception access, and she was a founder of what became Planned Parenthood. According to Dr. Roberts, Sanger's alliance with the eugenicists led to increasing public acceptance of contraception. By the 1980s, Explicitly, eugenist dialogue wasn't as socially acceptable. As is well documented, the criminalization of crack cocaine disproportionately to powder cocaine and other drugs is a useful example of what ways black Americans were targeted using tools that were racist but did not rely on explicitly racist rhetoric. An intense public focus on crack use in pregnancy became a way to question black fitness for parenthood without racist language. And criminalization was used as a form of punishing black people for having children. In Dr. Bridges' ethnography in New York City, she theorizes as to why society seems so invested in pathologizing black pregnancy and black parenting. By otherizing and homogenizing black pregnant people as unruly, as the undeserving poor, society can then define itself as wider, healthier, and with moral superiority in issues of sex and education. So problematizing black pregnancy becomes a way to reinforce white supremacy. 
Indeed. And one way Dr. Bridges notices the problematizing of black pregnancy is through provider contempt for patients. It's tough to think about contempt existing in patient-provider relationships. It absolutely prevents good care, and it inspires punishment. It definitely happens, though. And one way Dr. Bridges saw contempt was through the narrative of what she calls the wily patient. The wily patient is thought of as too dumb to make healthy and reproductive decisions, but smart enough to exploit the public benefits system. That idea of the wily patient seems to draw from welfare queen stereotypes. A public narrative of black women manipulating public benefits combines with a medical narrative that they aren't making good medical choices, which is reinforced by all the requirements being placed on them through the Medicaid system. Right. And just like the welfare queen term, the wily patient doesn't explicitly state race, but it does provoke racial imagery. This narrative impacts the way providers and clinic staff view and treat patients. Dr. Bridges observed medical staff showing contempt for patients who they assumed were duplicitous or conniving. In her study, that series of meetings put up barriers for someone with Medicaid to access care and actually led to contempt and damage some provider-patient relationships. So much of the racist dialogue in healthcare seems to talk around race without actually naming it. On the other hand, a lot of our medical guidelines do explicitly talk about race, particularly when it comes to discussion of risk. For example, thinking about prescribing aspirin for prevention of preeclampsia and determining likelihood of successful vaginal birth after cesarean. We'll talk in more detail about those specific examples in a bit, but let's think first for a moment about the concept of race-based risk itself. We need to be cautious about race-based risk for two reasons. One, we need to ask whether it is based on good data. Second, reaching back to when we discussed unruly bodies, figuring out what to make of these guidelines gets complicated. People form identities around these levels of risk, and it informs their decision-making, sometimes in unintended ways, including perhaps avoiding care. There's a lot of potential for harm there. Another reason to be cautious is because so much that goes into our risk calculations is out of a person's control. We are burdening people with a label of high risk that can feel powerless to act on. Right. For example, you may see some data saying that black people are more likely to die from postpartum hemorrhage. Research shows that isn't because of a biological difference in the severity of hemorrhage, but rather because of how they are cared for in the hospital. A bad outcome gets worse due to a provider behavior. This is called failure to rescue. Similarly, a preventable outcome isn't prevented. In one study, 46% of postpartum hemorrhages in black people were considered preventable, compared to 33% in white people. People should know about this so they are encouraged to be strong advocates for themselves, but we should be really clear about what the risk actually is. It isn't only a risk of severe postpartum hemorrhage. It's a risk of underdiagnosis and undertreatment. And we should think about it in that way so that we're aware of actually what needs to change. Among the public, the risk of underdiagnosis and undertreatment as well as the risk of increased medical interventions, is being used by some to suggest avoiding hospitals and delivering in birth centers or at home. On the flip side, among the medical community, there are lots of risk-based messages trying to discourage non-hospital birth, not always based in evidence. We should remember the concept of the wily patient and acknowledging how black people may be treated for deciding to avoid a hospital. Right. Not all providers will be comfortable with the idea of a non-hospital birth. But we need to be aware it is a choice our patients are considering, and we should be able to have an informed discussion with them. In fact, there's some evidence to support the decision to avoid the hospital. A meta-analysis in 2003 showed decreased rates of operative deliveries and no difference in stillbirth or neonatal death for people with low-risk pregnancies who decided to deliver at settings other than the hospital. So we've been talking about risks attributable to quality of medical care, which depends in part on where it's delivered but there are also disparities that are rooted in comorbidities like hypertension. Cardiovascular disease causes more than a third of maternal deaths overall and an even higher proportion for black people. What's more, cardiovascular disease causes a significant proportion of severe maternal morbidities, which are bad outcomes that don't end in death and are 100 times more common than the maternal death. To address this, we can focus on providing up-to-date, high-quality clinical care for conditions that hit black people harder, like cardiovascular disease. But we should remember, these comorbidities are tied to the same roots that cause maternal disparities. 
Here we again have to be cautious to avoid blame and shame and focus on the things a patient has the power to change. As much as research has tried to prove otherwise, we know that those comorbidity disparities are socially patterned. They are not a product of genes underlying race. By socially patterned, we often mean exposure to racism. A growing body of literature supports the idea that exposure to racism and poverty contributes to comorbidities and also to adverse pregnancy outcomes. There's a study that attributes some preterm birth and low birth weight to maternal experiences of personally mediated racism. Another study showed pregnant persons' economic status when they themselves were in utero and a child is correlated with adverse pregnancy outcomes. We think this is through a biological effect of social hardship. So racism and poverty accumulate in physiologic stress on the body, which increases risk to a pregnancy, and then we have about 40 weeks of pregnancy to reduce that risk as much as possible. Using aspirin to prevent preeclampsia is a great example of that. Race is among the risk factors that ACOG uses in determining preeclampsia risk. While we don't fully understand what causes preeclampsia, and there are certainly some that will continue to look for a biological explanation for higher rates among black people, this increased risk, along with other cardiovascular conditions, is more likely due to exposure to stress and racism. Aspirin can then be thought of as a treatment for exposure to racism, and we should recognize it doesn't address the upstream causes. Using ACOG's criteria, Every black person in their first pregnancy should be considered a candidate for aspirin to prevent preeclampsia. So if a black person establishes care with you at 10 weeks, that means you should be talking to them about their race and race-based medicine right away to help them make an informed decision. ACOG does not offer guidance on how to counsel patients on why race matters here. It's important to learn to have those conversations with patients, though, and it can be a minefield, especially in an interracial patient-provider relationship. It's easier for me to navigate a complex conversation like this if I already have a good understanding of my patient's background and how they might respond to different approaches. Sometimes, though, like in the case of aspirin for preeclampsia, this conversation needs to happen soon after meeting a patient. The Maternal Fetal Medicine Unit's vaginal birth after cesarean calculator is a different situation than aspirin, and it has received more cr public criticism of late. In that calculator, simply designating a person as Black or Latinx can reduce their predicted chance of vaginal delivery by more than 15%. The data behind the calculator doesn't inquire at all why certain racial groups might have lower success rates, and it uses unrefined categorization of race. Using a calculator that interprets a historical disparity into a predictive value can be self-reinforcing of this disparity. Lower calculator scores can lead to fewer attempts at VBAC for Black people, leading to fewer successful VBACs among Black people. And these are the types of systems that connect back to racecraft and that we have to be really thoughtful about. The literature behind the VBAC calculator and aspirin prophylaxis recommendations share the deficits that are common in medical studies on race as a risk factor. They just don't go beyond a superficial notion of race. There's nary a mention of racism. Before we started digging into the academic literature, we were aware of a growing discourse about how maternal outcome disparities stem from racism in its many forms. We expected to find research studies backing that up, but we didn't really find those studies. And that doesn't mean that there aren't mechanisms connecting racism to outcome disparities. The research that exists just hasn't described them extensively yet. Kamara Jones writes persuasively that this isn't an accident. She shows the blind spots in the research agenda, how we conceptualize race and racism, and who is conducting the research. She describes how epidemiologic researchers, and most of them are white, view racial disparities as intractable, unchangeable, and unsurprising. I think an examination of publication trends helps highlight the gaps that exist. By my count, the leading journal, Obstetrics and Gynecology, published 457 articles about obstetrics between 2017 and 2019. 14 articles, or about 3% of the total, clearly focused on race. That doesn't seem like a lot, especially since this was such a hot topic in the media over the last few years. Indeed, and by comparison, 5% of the articles focused on opioids, which was also a hot media topic. The percentage of articles focusing on opioids is increasing, while those focusing on race are decreasing. So the quantity of high-quality research is one problem. And what's in those 14 articles on race? Half of the 14 articles just show that a racial disparity exists. Like, duh, we get it. Or at least those who are paying attention get it. 
I want to know why the disparities exist and what we're going to do about them. Of those 14 articles, just four interrogate why a disparity exists and only two evaluate an intervention. Beyond that journal, there really are some great studies out there that prove research can be done to interrogate the reason for these disparities. We found a few that used innovative approaches to show disparities were associated with racism and not fully explained by differences in class or educational attainment. It can be hard to synthesize all that into the type of scientific argument that medical professionals are used to hearing. It's a good reminder that scientific research is only one type of knowledge and that the production of that knowledge is grounded in racist systems. Once we realize this scientific research doesn't quite exist yet, we looked for a way for bringing the rest of the literature into our audience. We hope that ethnographies, narratives, and historical analyses we are sharing help providers look closely at their own treatment of pregnant Black patients. A lot of what we found and are suggesting is obvious, but it's this obvious stuff that providers and health systems still aren't doing. We state the obvious out loud so we can hear how outrageous it is that this is where we are as a country, as a profession, and can commit ourselves to making meaningful change. Speaking as a white provider, it can be daunting to think of cutting through such a complex and dark history of racism in obstetrics to provide patients a not scary pregnancy and birth experience, let alone a positive one. I felt that way, especially in my role as a white trainee. Vulnerable patients are also more likely to be cared for by providers in training, another system that we need to work to dismantle. This can create another barrier to gaining the trust of our patients. I'm determined to make pregnancy a positive experience, but I know my patients recognize how much discrimination there is in the system. One study by Atanasio and Cosimaniel that helped us to do some self-reflection measured, quote, perceived discrimination due to race. That, that metric centers on what matters, that the patient is perceiving discrimination. It also leaves room for the possibility that the provider had no racist intent and may have no idea they are participating in an encounter that's being experienced as a racist interaction. We should be clear here that this isn't an excuse, but rather an acknowledgement that even when we don't realize it, we are often doing real harm. For well-intentioned white providers, that truth can be hard to grapple with. And this next idea likely will be too. That same study also coded disagreements with the provider about the care plan as perceived discrimination. I think this decision might surprise a lot of providers, but it's important to hear what's behind this, that the lived experience of racism leads people to experience their whole life through that lens, so that at least the question of discrimination is going to be an undercurrent in each interaction with providers. It's important for providers to be aware of that, as most especially providers who have the privilege of not having to think about race in most daily interactions. For any listeners not familiar with this idea, read Peggy McIntosh's White Privilege, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack to get caught up. So this sounds like a common dilemma of intentions, actions, and perceptions not lining up. What do you do to earn confidence and address distrust when your plans don't immediately line up? That study made me think critically about the importance of building trust with patients and not assuming I have earned that trust. Not only do we need to provide high-quality, evidence-based care, but we need to be able to demonstrate that to our patients. We need to be careful to explain why we're doing what we're doing and put it in the context of high-quality care. So show your patients that you have the expertise that they want and that you care about them. It sounds like you have to take the time to get to know your pregnant patients more personally to figure out what expertise they're looking for or how they want to receive care. That's right. And all the experiences of racism in someone's life are going to contribute to fears and expectations that I, as a white provider, won't care. I need to be centering the patient's experience in our interaction. That same study about perceived discrimination made a strong link between clear communication and perceived discrimination. The link goes both ways. Discrimination makes a patient reluctant to ask questions that could be empowering and trust-building, and poor communication is likely to be perceived as discrimination. Another way to hear these experiences of Black people is to hear a feeling of loss of control and autonomy. Disagreements with the provider's recommendations are linked to not having autonomy in the care plan. Poor communication has to do with not having control in the conversation. There is no question that racism limits the control and autonomy Black people have over their lives. We have got to center their experience of autonomy and control in caring for them. There are two amazing podcasts out there that center people of color's pregnancies and birth experiences. 
Birth Stories in Color is hosted by Laurel Gourier and Danielle Jackson, both doulas. They've built a platform for people of color to share their birth stories in their own words. The second podcast is called Natal, hosted by Gabrielle Horton and Martina Abraham Zilunga. They dive deep into many of the topics we've touched on through the stories that Black parents share. I think now is a time to pause for another grounding moment. After this poem, we will get more into the evidence of interventions and big policy initiatives. Here's a poem by Audre Lorde called A Woman Speaks. Moon-marked and touched by sun, my magic is unwritten, but when the sea turns back, it will leave my shape behind. I seek no favor, untouched by blood, unrelenting as the curse of love, permanent as my errors or my pride. I do not mix love with pity, nor hate with scorn. And if you would know me, look into the entrails of Uranus, where the restless oceans pound. I do not dwell within my birth, nor my divinities, who am ageless and half-grown, and still seeking my sisters, witches in Dahomey, wear me inside their coiled cloths as our mother did mourning. I have been woman for a long time. Beware my smile, I am treacherous with old magic and the noon's new fury, and with all your wide futures promised, I am woman and not white. So we've spent the first half of this episode on foundational components, including self-work by diving into the history of racism and obstetrics, and then using that context to form our relationship building practices with our patients. We often hear people asking about more concrete steps providers, and especially white providers, can take to reduce disparities in arenas ranging from individual practice changes to the clinic or hospital system level to the legislative level statewide or nationally. It is, of course, crucial to keep in mind that many of these suggestions address smaller endpoint con contributors to disparities rather than the root causes, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't be part of a comprehensive effort to reduce these disparities. In this section, we'll try to consider both upstream and immediate changes we can take to tackle disparities in maternal morbidity and mortality. Let's look first at access to care. We know that if someone has inadequate housing, food, or transportation access, everything else in life is harder, and that includes attending prenatal care. Black people have lower rates of first trimester care and are four times more likely to have five or fewer prenatal visits in total. Although the research is lacking, it suggests that later entry into prenatal care accounts for some morbidity and mortality disparities. Now, different access is a social determinant of health. We can advocate for the health systems in which we work to implement programs to address racism and other social determinants of health locally, like transportation assistance programs with cab vouchers is a very simple example. In our outpatient clinics, expanding office hours can make care more accessible for folks who can't afford to miss work. Having high-quality interpreter services readily available is key to accessibility for people who speak languages other than English. But Comrade Jones calls on us to also consider social determinants of equity. This means asking, why is there different access? In terms of access, residential segregation and disinvestment in Black neighborhoods has led to economic isolation, substandard built environments, increased exposure to pollution, and less access to healthcare services for Black people, all of which contribute to poorer health outcomes. To tackle the equity piece, we need to push for reinvestment in Black communities so pregnant people can get high quality obstetrical care near their homes on their terms. In addition, and perhaps most importantly, Black and other minority communities deserve to receive care from providers who are a part of their community or who speak their languages. Minority communities are severely underrepresented within the health professional field, and we should be focusing on pipeline work that invests in diversifying the healthcare workforce. This is a featured proposal in the Momnibus Bill that we'll discuss later, as well as policy recommendations by ACOG and the AAFP. The provider-patient relationship is another important area of focus to strengthen access to care. The literature also suggests access to care is limited by negative perceptions by providers and staff and fear of healthcare systems. This is stuff we have control over. We have to create a positive healthcare experience for our existing patients of color before they become pregnant. 
We have to be welcoming over the phone when patients call and ask about appointments. We have to center making them feel comfortable when they come in for a new patient appointment. And we have to increase access to providers through accepting Medicaid. In addition to all that, we need to be aware that pregnancy is often a more stressful time for black people than their white counterparts. Black people on average have more stressful events in the year before birth, higher self-reported stress levels, and higher biologic measures of chronic stress. Black people in particular have higher rates of self-isolation and higher rates of exposure to physical violence on top of the financial hardship that they share with women of all races. And let's not forget that while many people may experience financial hardship, the median wealth of white people in our country is 12 times that of black people. Not all financial hardships are created equal. Let's also not forget that mass incarceration disproportionately impacts black people. Half of black women have incarcerated family members versus 12% of white women. Having a family member incarcerated is tied to fewer breadwinners in a home, increased stress, social isolation due to stigma, and is independently linked with poorer health outcomes in non-pregnant adults. I think it's reasonable to presume the toxic stress also affects pregnant adults. So not only are our black patients bringing their fear of experiencing racism into healthcare into the room, they're bringing their full and complex lives, including whatever they had to do to get time off of work for an appointment, whatever they had to do to find a provider, and whatever they had to do to get there. We need to appreciate their presence in our exam room. Obviously, not every pregnant black patient is going to have all or any of those things going on, and we also need to be careful not to profile our patients. Instead, we need to enter our encounters ready to listen to what is going on in their lives. Have you found any useful tools to demonstrate this care and appreciation for our patients? The black midwives I referenced earlier have some great ideas. Rachel Hardiman and Katie Cosimanil are two researchers collaborating with midwife Rebecca Paulston to encourage us to practice, quote, culturally focused care that sees people for who they are, what their lived experience is, and what that means for bringing a child into the world. Rebecca Polston reminds us we are there to help patients not to be afraid of birth, to tell them they can do it, and to be excited for them. Demetra Sarecki puts it even more simply, quote, treat black people like humans, shut your mouth for five minutes, Believe black people when they say, this is a problem. That all sounds painfully obvious, but it's also very easy to lose sight of amidst all the discrete clinical tasks of prenatal care jammed into short office visits, Q-group visits. And if we as white providers don't remind ourselves that black patients' lived experience is different from our lived experience, we aren't going to center that experience. In hearing those suggestions, I've been giving more thought to being intentional about meeting my patients. I don't know about you all, but I haven't been able to make a habit of taking a few minutes with a new patient to chat, hear what they're bringing in the room, and frame my care philosophy a little bit. I still haven't figured out how to do it perfectly, but I'm giving more thought to how important it might be. And I'm feeling recommitted to making sure my patients know that I love caring for pregnant people. I see it as a privilege to be part of their birth journey. I really love that. But it's hard stuff, and sometimes the medical complexity can be distracting. Getting to know my patient before pregnancy really helps with this. Agreed. Given the history of Black reproductive coercion in this country, a patient-centered reproductive planning discussion before a pregnancy can help set a healthy patient-provider relationship foundation that requires understanding history, including some of the events and ideas we've talked about here, and approaching the subject cautiously in a way that centers the autonomy of Black people. That can look like asking about interest in future pregnancies in an open-ended way routinely, respecting the response we receive, and discussing comorbidities in the context of the patient's reproductive goals so patients can approach that decision-making fully informed about how their health status and timing of pregnancy could impact pregnancy outcomes. And I think it's important to say this next obvious statement directly because it's not always how the way these conversations go. When pregnancy is not desired, contraception should be offered that day. And when pregnancy is desired, that choice should be supported, even when our medical teaching says that's a risky thing to do. An important way we can support that choice is by optimizing cardiovascular and other risk factors in an evidence-based way. There are so many potential risk factors and comorbidities to screen for. What do you focus on? 
When someone with high-risk comorbidities is planning a pregnancy or presents early in pregnancy, assessing baseline end-organ damage can give a more accurate sense of risk for that particular person and facilitate appropriate treatment to reduce morbidity and mortality. A couple specific things to look for according to the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine are checking renal function and evaluating for sleep apnea. Some other practice changes to aim for in providing prenatal care that can especially benefit people of color are to follow the USPSTF guideline about providing low-dose aspirin for the prevention of preeclampsia. Because it's a newer recommendation, you may or may not have adopted this into your practice yet, but depending on the type of clinic in which you practice, you may find that quite a large proportion of your patients qualify for this. We also need to continuously educate on clear warning signs relevant to the patient's risk so your patients know what symptoms to look out for and when to call. I think similarly, in our clinical practice together, we've added early diabetes screening to our prenatal care checklist, and I've certainly been offering it much more since. And another underappreciated disparity-reducing practice is to treat anemia. Black women have rates of anemia in pregnancy more than double that of white women, and research suggests getting rid of the disparity would make a huge impact in morbidity disparities overall. And if a person develops hypertension during pregnancy, be sure to treat it and monitor for fetal growth when indicated to diagnose intrauterine growth restriction, which is thought to be a reason for the higher rates of C-sections related to fetal distress and labor in black birthing people. Another opportunity that warrants attention is the prevention of antenatal and in-hospital DVTs. We know that pregnancy is a hypercoagulable state, and 41% of pulmonary emboli actually occur antepartum, another complication we should give clear warning signs for. Then another 23% occur one to six days postpartum. A full 15% of maternal deaths in developed nations are due to in-hospital venous thromboembolism, which is a very much preventable condition. Major obstetric organizations differ in their guidelines on post-delivery VTE prophylaxis, which can make it hard for hospitals and providers to know what to do. The California Maternal Quality Care Collaborative, the MQCC, has developed a VTE bundle. Seems like this warrants more examination. I'll throw in here a brief plug that, now that we've entered the part of this episode that's basically a laundry list of action items for obstetric providers, you can refer to the show notes anytime to see this compilation of action steps written out in brief. Moving on now, we mentioned checklists a bit earlier to help with guideline implementation, so let's turn for a moment to talk about how safety protocols can reduce disparities in maternity care. I'll start by mentioning that more than half of all maternal deaths are preventable, and an even greater proportion of black maternal deaths are preventable. While the clinical practice changes we, are, we were just talking about can have some impact on that, there's a greater impact in systems-wide safety protocols and quality improvement work. With that in mind, anyone providing obstetrical care should be aware of the care recommendations outlined in safety bundles. One organization that's developed these is the Council on Patient Safety in Women's Healthcare, which is a national maternal safety and quality improvement initiative with member organizations including ACOG and the AAFP, among 17 other professional organizations related to women's health. They've created safety bundles for a variety of maternal complications that contribute to maternal death, including venous thromboembolism, hemorrhage, severe hypertension, maternal mental health, and opioid use disorder, as well as bundles for different phases of care, for reducing primary C-sections, postpartum care, and transitioning out of maternity care. Most targeted for this topic, there's a bundle called Reduction of Peripartum Racial and Ethnic Disparities. Bundles like these can facilitate early recognition of complications and rapid response and provide guidelines for safe care decision-making and transitions. One study found that use of safety bundles decreased the maternal mortality rate in California by 55%. That's huge. You can find links to the bundles in the show notes if you want to check them out. They're a great tool to check your clinical practices and make sure you're providing high-quality care. Beyond that, we can work with leadership in our health systems to get these implemented system-wide for the greatest effect. It's also worth advocating to the legislator in your state to make participating in these bundles a Medicaid quality incentive to make it easier for more systems to get on board and participate. Another quality improvement effort that's worth being aware of and pushing your leadership to implement is early warning systems. I'll talk about the maternal early warning system, MUSE, developed by the Council on Patient Safety and Women's Health Care we were just talking about, linked in the show notes, but a few different systems have been proposed by or other organizations too. 
The idea is similar to the way QSOFA is used for sepsis to identify patients at high risk for mortality early in order to reduce failure to rescue. The MUSE outlines criteria that require an immediate response, which trigger the bedside nurse to get an in-house physician to the bedside within 10 minutes to make a plan. If initial interventions fail to resolve the vital sign abnormalities or concerning symptoms, an MFM and or intensivist or rapid response team are called. This sort of system prompts the primary physician to monitor closely and has built-in mechanisms to escalate care if the situation doesn't improve as expected. These early warning systems are trying to prevent the failure to rescue we discussed earlier. Providers' implicit or explicit bias can lead us to underreact to clinical signs or misattribute symptoms and lose important chances to prevent bad outcomes. And while these tools improve care for everyone, they provide the most help to patients who are less likely to have their care appropriately escalated and can also be targeted at clinical scenarios like cardiovascular morbidity that disproportionately impact black people. While safety bundles can improve care for everyone, but especially benefit those at risk of worse outcomes, leaders in hospitals and clinics should focus quality improvement work specifically on diminishing health disparities. Doing so defines quality care as equitable care, as high quality care for the most vulnerable. This can be done by implementing a disparities dashboard within your health system, where QI measures are viewed separately by race to help make the disparities in your own system explicit. In this model, eliminating a disparity is what constitutes success. One thing that has led to our knowledge of these disparities is work to standardize the process for reviewing bad maternal outcomes and to collect demographic data in that process. There's an example of a standardized process for doing this from the Council on Patient Safety and Women's Healthcare, which we'll link to in the show notes. You can work to make sure your health system is using this kind of process to identify and review cases of morbidity and mortality, which can be used in conjunction with a disparities dashboard to drive quality improvement efforts. In addition to these system-wide safety protocols, there are a number of other quality improvement activities that have been recommended as areas of focus to help reduce disparities in perinatal outcomes. Because the morbidity events that result in maternal mortality are overall uncommon, simulation training can be a useful tool to keep up skills and prepare providers to respond optimally in situations an individual provider doesn't encounter on a frequent basis. This is especially true at lower volume hospitals where certain complications may be very infrequent. The research shows that it matters which hospital someone delivers at. Birth outcomes are worse for people of all races at hospitals with a higher proportion of people of color. And there is no variability among outcomes for races within these hospitals. This suggests that the care is different at those hospitals. In fact, it is estimated that about 48% of the black-white disparity in maternal morbidity in New York City can be attributed to delivery location. Some of this has to do with level of care, and some of it has to do with the many other ways that hospitals vary. These hospitals varied by presence of a level three or four nursery, which probably correlates with maternal level of care, but also by volume, public or private ownership, and whether or not it was a teaching hospital. More needs to be known about what factors lead pregnant people to which hospitals. Research shows these hospitals with poor outcomes aren't always the closest hospital. Other factors matter, like segregated neighborhoods, what physician is chosen and where that physician delivers, patient and provider perception of risk, patient choice and knowledge of different hospitals, and insurance coverage. While it may be tempting to simply steer people away from these underperforming hospitals, that runs the risk of further restricting where obstetric care is provided in our country. The Naked Truth Death by Delivery documentary covers the gutting of rural health systems, including ability to access obstetric care close to home. The focus should be on targeting quality improvement to hospitals with poor outcomes. We also need to make sure people are accessing the level of care they need. There is an ACOG-SMFM care consensus calling clearly for improved processes to get folks to the right level of care based on their comorbidities and risk factors. The responsibility was put on health systems to develop clear referral networks, guidelines, and partnerships between levels of care. The consensus also called for higher levels of care to mentor and build capacity at the lower care levels. It's important to note here that this needs to take place alongside efforts to make sure that attention to bias and racism is happening at all levels of care, and that access to the right level of care is being facilitated for the patient. 
It's a balancing act of trying to streamline care for a patient in the place they feel most comfortable, while also taking comorbidities seriously and making sure they are being managed by people with expertise in the risks they impose. There is probably lots of room for collaboration between specialties and across levels of care to make this happen in a patient-centered way. No matter where a person delivers, their access to healthcare shouldn't end so soon after delivery. Maternal mortality includes deaths up to a full year postpartum that are deemed to be related to the pregnancy, regardless of the outcome of the pregnancy. In Washington State, where we practice, a full 70% of maternal mortality happens after delivery. So postpartum care is a critical component in reducing maternal mortality. A lot of the changes to postpartum care involve payment and legislative reform. Before we move into our advocacy section, let's take another poetry pause first. This is called The Nature of This Flower is to Bloom by Alice Walker. Rebellious, living, against the eternal crush, a song of color blooming for deserving eyes, blooming gloriously for itself. Thanks for that. Returning to rethinking postpartum care, let's remember that routine postpartum care for many years has looked like 24 to 48 hours of observation in the hospital after a vaginal delivery, and then a 20-minute office visit around six weeks later. 33% of deaths occur in this time between hospital discharge and six-week follow-up, and 30% more happen after six weeks. Black people are overrepresented in these deaths after six weeks, partly due to cardiomyopathy, which presents later and is more prevalent in black people. Our routine postpartum system does not create good access to care during these two important periods. If we don't do a great job educating patients on warning signs, if they feel reluctant to reach out because of historical distrust of the medical system or their own negative personal experiences, or if we underreact to their symptoms as has been well documented, this is a time when dangerous problems can go unaddressed. Behavioral health constitutes another realm of maternal mortality that occurs most often between six weeks and one year postpartum. In fact, a full 50% of the preventable pregnancy-related deaths in Washington state are secondary to behavioral health reasons, including substance use. And while deaths from hemorrhage occur on average 12 hours postpartum and hypertension two days postpartum, behavioral health-related deaths happen on average 157 days postpartum or about five months after delivery. We also see lower rates of primary care attendance within one year postpartum for publicly insured or black people with less than half receiving primary care at all. So the majority of black people who remain at risk of dying receive no health care during the whole first postpartum year while they remain at risk. ACOG has some recent recommendations we should be aware of to optimize postpartum care. They recommend conceptualizing postpartum care as an ongoing process rather than a single office visit, starting with anticipatory guidance during pregnancy, including reproductive life planning, like we talked about earlier. They recommend that the postpartum care process include universal follow-up within three weeks postpartum and even sooner for people with blood pressure concerns or cardiovascular disease, followed by a comprehensive visit within 12 weeks postpartum to assess physical, social, and psychological well-being and counsel women on future risks of cardiometabolic disease and the importance of timely follow-up with primary care. Providers should educate patients about the long-term implications of intrapartum conditions like preeclampsia to help them prioritize their health in an informed way. And this can be taken a step further to really facilitate the postpartum transition of care most effectively, with helping patients to identify a primary care provider and doing a warm handoff rather than just reminding people it's important. Primary care providers need to stay up to date on the implications of intrapartum conditions. We need to pay attention to hypertension postpartum. Look at blood pressures intentionally at every visit, and if hypertension persists, treat it appropriately. And of course, as we discussed before, while this is good practice to implement across the board, it's most important and would be most beneficial to women with chronic medical conditions, which disproportionately affect black people. I'll insert a plug here for provision of maternity care by family practitioners who, by virtue of their role seeing baby for well-child checks every two to three months throughout that first year postpartum, have lots more opportunities to check in with parents, which can really easily include screening for cardiac disease and behavioral health concerns. We should push to get this reimbursed, especially if we want our pediatrician colleagues to do this screening as well. 
and will need to bolster training around screening for and managing mental health conditions in pregnancy and postpartum, including moving away from a sole focus on postpartum depression towards broader behavioral health screening that captures a fuller spectrum of problems. While I think we all see the need for widespread healthcare payment reform, in the meantime, we need reimbursement changes to facilitate more postpartum visits in accordance with the ACOG recommendations. Right now, pregnancy care is bundled, paid as a lump sum for the whole package of services, and this includes one postpartum visit. If we want providers to do more visits, they need to be able to bill for them. We should also extend Medicaid to cover the full first year postpartum to ensure folks have coverage for the entire time they remain at risk for maternal mortality. And while we're at it, advocating for payment for doulas, home visits, and team-based outreach could allow more robust postpartum support that maximally reduces barriers to care to become a sustainable practice. Throughout this episode, we've identified opportunities for advocacy within our health systems. These same requests need to be amplified at the state level. States determine things like Medicaid funding, qualifications, and reimbursement, and also are the drivers of maternal morbidity review boards and quality incentives. In addition to that, there is some exciting work going on at the national level as well. The Momnibus Act is a huge legislative package introduced in the U.S. House that is informed by a lot of this research. It calls for changes like increasing access and funding for postpartum care, nutrition support, doula care, as well as funds efforts to diversify the healthcare workforce, among a ton of other things. As much as you can get excited hearing a summary of a bill, it is exciting stuff. The Momnibus Act is the product of the Black Maternal Health Caucus, co-founded in April 2019 by Congresswomen Lauren Underwood and Alma Adams. It was introduced in March 2020, and as of July, it is still in committee. There are so many policies in the Momnibus that could make a huge impact. Among those that I love most are those that support health provider visits in the home, which increase maternal self-confidence and improves prenatal care utilization. And let's keep reminding ourselves that we are one of the only developed nations without paid family leave. This disproportionately affects people of color, so it's an excellent place to focus our efforts to decrease disparities. Organizations like Sister Song, the Black Mamas Matter Alliance, and the National Birth Equity Collaborative laid the foundation for such a comprehensive package as the Momnibus Act. These organizations are standard bearers for reproductive justice advocacy. Thank you to those organizations and their staff, and to the countless Black scholars, researchers, care providers, activists, and poets whose work we have tried to highlight throughout this episode. Thank you to Dr. Claire Thompson, our faculty advisor, and Dr. Ben Davis, our program director, for his technical support and hosting this podcast. And thank you to those of you listening. We are grateful for your commitment to fighting these inequities. This work needs all of us. Don't forget to check out our show notes, where we have links to all the works and organizations we mentioned here. And please feel free to leave comments, questions, or reflections. We know this is a continuous journey, and we're always looking for ways to improve. Thank you to Drs. Anne-Marie Williams, Katie Wan, and Colin Schenk. This episode of Grayscale was produced by Ben Davis and Steve Wan. Thanks for the help. And even though this episode didn't have a direct patient story, we thank our patients for continuing to enrich our lives through shared experiences. Till next time.